So, here we are. <laughs> and I know that you've all uh, been welcomed very warmly um, already uh, by Joanne and by Kathy. And uh, I'd also like to offer a very warm welcome to each and all of you up here in these high Rocky Mountains uh, on this 12th annual month-long retreat uh, that we've been having for quite a number of years now, this time of year. And it's wonderful to see quite a number of old friends here and a couple of new friends who will become old friends as we go along through this retreat. It's really quite a joy to be here with you and uh, quite an honor, actually, to be here with all of you through this month and for a couple of you uh, for two weeks. Spending time together in a way that's really quite unique uh, and quite special in our culture. So I'd like to begin with a poem. It's called Tillico Lake by David White. In this high place, it's as simple as this. Leave everything you know behind. Step toward the cold surface. Say the old prayer of love and open both arms. Those who come with empty hands will stare into the lake astonished. There in the cold light reflecting pure snow, the true shape of your own face. As we enter into retreat, each one alone, and also as we come together as a group, we're creating or co-creating a, a temporary village, we could say, a spiritual practice community, a sangha. We come together as one of my Burmese teachers calls it, we come together as a, a, as a Dhamma family. As we begin this period of commitment to exploring and cultivating and deepening our understanding, our insight into the nature of things directly through our practice, through our meditation practice. It seems that for many of us, there's a tremendous amount of time and energy spent, or maybe more accurately, expended, cultivating an outer life. Doing things, producing things, acquiring things, going places, being a somebody, becoming something, 
this next month will really be quite special and unique in that none of this is really important. None of this will really be asked of you in the ordinary ways of the seeming requirements and expectations of the world. All of you here have practiced a number of times, some of you many times, in retreat. But maybe for some of you, this particular approach to a longer period of practice might be relatively new for you. And I'm sure, though, that many of you know the experience that arises for us at the onset of a retreat. The sense of entering into sacred space and sacred time, sacred space and time. Entering into a sanctuary, both within our surroundings and within ourselves. And for me, whether I'm teaching or uh, entering into a period of intensive personal practice, there's always this feeling in my heart of entering into sacred time and space, both within my own mind, my own heart, and all around me, in the place around me, space around me. Last evening here, when we finished setting up the meditation hall, after we were all done, I just uh, stood still for a number of moments and just feeling and seeing and deeply enjoying the sacredness and the beauty of this space. I spend a lot of time in uh, meditation halls and it never fails to feel that kind of special, sacred beauty inside me in relationship to it. So the space around us, here, up here, up here in this high mountain area uh, during early spring, there are many, many ongoing changes occurring within the sacredness of life surrounding us up here. The incredible diversity and natural rhythms of life happening all around us. The weather and all of its changes often quite dramatic up here in the mountains this time of year the ongoing changes in the light, the myriad forms of life that we share this place with, the community of beings, many forms of life that we share this place with, the trees and all of the other manifestations of plant life coming to life, so to say, little by little now this time of year and the air itself. All of this 
all of it constantly changing. Beginning, ending, birthing, dying. Even in this birthing season of early spring. This natural world so close around us and so available and easy to connect with. It's a great gift that we're not separate from. A gift that holds us in itself. The natural world is really a great teacher. A great teacher of the perfectly natural fluidity of diversity and change that just simply is. It's really a mirror of the truth of ourself, our nature as nature. And considering that nature's really no problem to itself, no problem to itself in itself, we can really learn from this mirror of naturalness the just isness, the just beingness, the, we could say, absolutely open-hearted presence of this perfectly natural world. It seems really no great surprise at all that humans are drawn to places like this. Places where untarnished nature and beauty are so easily accessible. I know that myself, I myself, and many of us experience a kind of unfettered, open-hearted connection in moments of simple, clear presence when we really take the time to arrive and to just simply be to just simply be, for instance, with the late afternoon light. Maybe this afternoon you had that experience. An early morning sunrise. The changing sky colors at the close of a day. Or just simply maybe sitting and walking outside and really, truly sensing the particulars of how early spring displays itself in small and larger ways. And of course, along with any of this, moments of a silent, direct, clear and simple presence in our body, mind and heart any time of the day, any time of the night. One day in the 92nd year of her life, my mother and I were out for our daily walk together. And she stopped as we were walking and stooped over and looking silently and quite intently at a flower that was very full in its blooming. 
very, very full in its liveliness. And after a, a couple of moments of, of this uh, activity of hers, she said, it's great to be alive. Probably to each of us has come some maybe unexpected, unsuspected, and maybe even exceptional moments during times of a very simple, clear, unfettered attention. Moments, we could call it spiritual attention. And the natural world is often the place where this happens for us most easily, at least at first. And then also maybe ongoing through our life. Sometimes in these moments of spiritual attention, it's as though we fall through ordinary appearances. We fall through, so to say, our usual habitual selves into an intuitive place of the true nature of things. Our mind and heart open with a clear and more precise receptivity, a sensing and seeing in relationship to how things truly are. This, we could say, is our practice. Also in a place like this, especially during the warmer seasons, people come here to reflect and to do inner work, to explore, to investigate the nature of things. There's quite a bit of accumulated wholesome energy here a really wonderful, symbiotic, and expanding energy that we're both partaking of and adding to. So how incredibly fortunate that we're here. During these retreat days, we have a great gift, the great gift of being taken care of in a very beautiful and simple way all of our basic needs being met. While you're here, life is pared down, simplified from your usual daily life activities, demands and seeming needs. There's really not much to do over these next weeks. Sitting, walking, eating, hearing, meeting with me every couple of days, which will begin the day after tomorrow. Spending a bit of time each day with your yogi job. Sleeping. Not too much, but not too little. (laughs) And most importantly, cultivating a clear focus of attention and bringing this attention to your particular experiences of body, mind, and heart. 
So compared to the ways of the world, there really isn't very much to do over these next weeks, as I've already said, which is a good thing to remember, which is why I just repeated it. (laughs) Because some of you, really, some of you might have such a strong habit of keeping busy that you just may go on creating all sorts of things to do, really just simply out of habit. So keep in mind what I just said. (laughs) So in light of this, one of the things that we're practicing while we're here is renunciation. And in this case, meaning letting go of busyness. Letting go of the usual distractions that you use, that you engage in to try to relax out of all the busyness. So it's a gift. It's really a great gift, this renunciation. And as each of you well know, it's not so usual to take time to engage our energy in this way. To really simplify our life and to spend time, a lengthy time, looking inward. To come to a place to really just simply be. Not to become anything or anybody. And not to fill up the mind with more stuff. There's already enough in there. But just simply be connecting and looking inward, looking directly at your experience just as it is in the moment. And so we begin together in a kind of sanctuary, being here together in this place of safety and protection, this place that holds and engenders deep respect and acceptance. It's really a valuable gift that each of you have given to yourself for this next month or these next two weeks. And a great gift that you give to each other simply by being here together as a Dhamma family. For just about everyone, there are many different feelings that come up at the onset of a retreat. Excitement, maybe nervousness, worry, delight, maybe relief. Lots of energy moving through one's body, mind, and heart. Even for people who have sat many, many retreats. For me, in teaching or beginning a personal retreat, many of these same flavors of energy move through my heart and mind and body. It's human nature, just human nature, entering into something new. There's always a little added energy moving through the body, the heart, 
and the mind, and it has many different tones. And really how very fortunate to be embodied as we are in this human form, this precious human existence, making it possible to practice, making it possible to be able to look within and cultivate a pure, kind, and balanced mind and heart with the possibility of liberation, that clear insight into the nature of things brings. We're actually a very small minority on this earth, this human incarnation that we have at the moment. We're really a small minority on the earth and in the universe and who knows beyond. So if you think about it for a moment, for instance, there are many, many more insects on this planet than humans. A friend here in Taos who owns and runs a a plant nursery said that there are 200 million bugs, as she put it, per human on the planet. We're outnumbered. (laughs) So how fortunate, in fact, that we're embodied in the way that we are. The human mind, heart, and body are really the most conducive toward developing kindness, compassion, joy, equanimity, and the great gift of understanding, wisdom, because of the particular mixture that each one of us has of both pleasure and pain. There's really just enough of each. Certainly sometimes a little more of one, sometimes a little more of the other. And at times maybe some huge handfuls of one and seemingly not much at all of the other. But the truth is that it changes. It changes back and forth within a week, daily, even within moments. So really this human realm offers us the best conditions that we could ask for. There are beings that primarily live in what could be called the lower realms where the intensity of suffering is so great that it's impossible or nigh unto impossible to develop the wholesome qualities of mind and heart that are needed for practice. And I'm sure that each one of us here have been in those lower realms at times. And so we know that place of tremendous fire and contraction a place where it feels impossible to be present with our experience, where it seems 
impossible to connect with goodness, acceptance, kind-heartedness, joy, compassion, or any degree of equanimity, let alone wisdom. And there are the higher realms, what are sometimes called the higher planes of existence, where sometimes everything seems so blissful that there can be very little inspiration to practice. And I'm sure each one of you have tasted this, at least moments of it, where it all seems just absolutely perfect for maybe a moment or two, and maybe three. (laughs) If we have a practice, it might just fly right out the window in those perfect moments, seemingly perfect moments. We forget that life isn't always so blissful, that we really don't always get what we want, that life doesn't really always go our way. In the blissful moments, it's easy to forget that we still have our spiritual work to do. So this realm that we live in most of the time, this place where we experience both pleasant and unpleasant, maybe very subtle or maybe quite strongly, this is the place of our practice. This is the place where understanding the true nature of things unfolds and blossoms. This place of our precious human existence. It's said that if the world were water and a wooden ring one foot in diameter was thrown upon the water and blown around by the winds. It's said that a blind turtle surfacing once every hundred years would put its neck through this wooden ring more easily than one can obtain a precious human existence. We're a rare species within the enormous breadth of life life forms on this planet. There's an ancient teaching that says those who have a precious human existence with all of the conditions, opportunities, and blessings in place to meet the Dhamma and to practice the Dhamma, to practice the way of truth, to practice the way of the heart, that these beings are as rare as daytime stars. So here we all are, a room full of daytime stars, (laughs) with really a wonderful month or two weeks ahead of us, a time of cultivation and discovery, a time of exploration, 
purification, understanding, which some of the time might not be so easy and at times might even be quite challenging. But all the while, it also includes the incredible potential of bringing forth understanding and illumination, bringing forth calm, joy, and equanimity. As we enter into this period of sustained spiritual practice, there are a few specific supports that are very readily available for you. So I'd like to briefly take some time now to look at these with you. Our first support is the special gift of silence. This silence that very gently holds us in itself. Silence is really amazing in certain ways. It doesn't expect anything. It doesn't judge. It's infinitely patient, boundlessly spacious, open, allowing, accepting. This container of silence that everything comes out of and returns to. And of course, within the silence, there are sounds, all kinds of sounds that arise and pass. Sometimes we interpret sound as noise. It's important, actually, to note that this is an interpretation. And to notice it, watch it. Is this or that sound noise? What happens if it's noise? Are you relaxed? Is your heart open to just simply hear, receive the sound? Or is there a contraction? Some form of aversion? Maybe a feeling of resistance or a feeling of being disturbed. If it's just a sound, our relationship to it is really simply and directly connecting, hearing, and knowing. Knowing maybe the quality of the sound, which you might perceive as pleasant or maybe perceive it as unpleasant, along with the arising and passing nature of the sound itself. And most likely, you won't always have this particular relationship to sound. So with an open heart, just mindfully notice. Notice your relationship and response or reaction to sound and noticing it without judgment without self-judgment or judgment of the sound or judgment of both and noticing it in the midst of silence. I can honestly say and that I think many of you know for yourself 
that most people by the end of retreat or very often somewhere along the way feel that the silence is one of the most precious aspects of retreat time because it holds everything but doesn't hold on to anything. Everything just simply comes and goes in the spacious, patient acceptance of silence. And the key here, again, is you don't have to be anybody. You really don't have to be anybody special. You don't have to be a somebody, as I mentioned before or become a somebody. You just simply be. And it is a great relief, actually, to just simply be. Some people have said that sometimes within the silence it feels as though all of the windows of the world, the windows of life itself, have been thrown wide open. When this is our experience, we might have this sense of freshness, as though an open-hearted receptivity and a fresh clarity have been let in. Silence is where we learn to listen, to really listen, where we learn to sense see and understand the nature of things. So this is our first support, silence. And I'd like to offer you uh, some words from John Muir, naturalist and environmentalist John Muir. He said, I only went out for a walk and finally concluded to stay out till sundown for going out I found was really going in. One seeks solitude to know relatedness. Then the unknown, the unarticulated, the unpredictable, the uncontrollable appear as protectors of truth, protectors of the present. So now I'd like to take a bit of a look at our next support that's readily available here for us during our retreat, taking refuge. So what does it mean in this context, taking refuge? One of the ways that we might recognize and experience refuge is a place of shelter a place of protection and safety, a sacred space and place, as I've already mentioned. I found a dictionary definition um, with, uh, for the word refuge, which said it's a port of shelter to vessels in stormy weather. And I thought that was really quite appropriate, an appropriate metaphor for life, <laughs> which at times is like stormy weather, and uh, some periods of our practice are like stormy weather. 
So we take refuge in periods of stormy weather or calm as well. Refuge can often be experienced as a place of strength and clarity, both inwardly and also outwardly. Outwardly, the strength and the clarity of those around us, our teachers, our sangha, our spiritual community, our spiritual friends who are here with us on the path. So refuge. And in the context of the Dhamma, as I think you all know, uh, refuge is, we take refuge in the three jewels or the three treasures. The first being the Buddha, the second being the Dhamma, and the third being the Sangha. The Buddha's teaching can be thought of as a kind of building with its own distinct foundations and foundation and levels and stairs and roof. And like any other building, the teachings also the teachings also have a door. And in order to enter it, we have to enter through this door. The door of the entrance to the teachings of the Buddha is in going for refuge to the three treasures, the three jewels. From ancient times to the present, going for refuge has functioned as the entryway, we could say, to the teachings of the Buddha, giving admission to the rest of the teachings from its lowermost level or lowermost story all the way up to the top. And all of those who really embrace the Buddha's teaching do so by passing through the door of taking refuge. Those who are already committed regularly reaffirm their conviction by taking this same threefold commitment, taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. So the refuge being, I go for refuge for the Buddha. I go for refuge to the Sangha. I go for refuge to the Dhamma. I go for refuge to the Sangha in that order. And some people may feel that it's kind of commonplace or maybe not that important. This step may not seem very important, pretty commonplace. Kind of have a slight the, the uh, process of taking refuge. Maybe especially in comparison to some of the teachings and some of the practices and some of the lofty achievements that lie beyond taking refuge. It really is important to not underestimate this act, which really is what imparts the direction and the forward momentum, we could say, to the entire practice of the Buddha's path. So, as a way of uh, bringing some light to uh, the refuge of 
taking refuge in the Buddha, I'd like to share uh, a few uh, uh, classical uh, similes, as they're called, or metaphors. Um, uh, they're really quite quite beautiful, and there's many of them, but uh, I ju- uh, in relationship to the Buddha, I just picked my favorites. Uh, the first uh, metaphor simile compares the Buddha to the sun. With his, uh, for his appearance in the world is like the sun rising over the horizon. His teachings of the true Dhamma, which is the taking refuge in the Dhamma, is like the net of the sun's rays spreading out over the earth, dispelling the darkness of, of the cold and the, of the night, giving warmth and giving light to all beings. And the third refuge, the Sangha, is like the beings for whom the darkness of night has been dispelled, who go about their affairs enjoying the warmth of the radiance of the sun. So that's the first simile or metaphor, classical one that's offered. The second compares the Buddha to the full moon. You notice they're all um, nature. They all come about through the natural world. So then the second one compares the Buddha to the full moon. The jewels of the nighttime, the jewel, the full moon, the jewel of the nighttime sky, that's the Buddha. And then the Dhamma, his teachings of the Dhamma is like the moon shedding its beams of light over the world, cooling the heat of the day. And the Sangha, the third refuge, is like persons who go out in the night to see and enjoy the refreshing splendor of moonlight. So maybe you'll do this one while you're here. And the third simile or metaphor, the Buddha is likened to a great rain cloud spreading out across the countryside at a time when the land has been parched with a long summer heat. The teachings of the true Dhamma is like the downpour of the rain which inundates the land giving water to the plants and all the vegetation, all the growing things. And the Sangha is like the plants, the trees, shrubs, bushes, grass, which thrive and flourish when nourished by the rain pouring down from the cloud. That might be my favorite. (laughs) The fourth, there's one more, compares the Buddha to a lotus flower the paragon of beauty and purity. Just as the lotus grows up in a muddy lake and rises above the water and stands in full splendor, unsoiled by the mud, so the Buddha, having grown up in the world, overcomes the world and abides in its midst, untainted by its impurities. The Buddha's teaching, the Dhamma, The Buddha's teaching of the true Dhamma is like this sweet, perfumed fragrance emitted by the lotus flower, giving delight to all. And the Sangha, the Sangha is like the host of bees who collect around the lotus, gather the pollen, and then fly off to their hives to transform it to honey. So... uh, I love these, uh, this way of exploring 
the refuge is a little different than I've talked about usually. I like it. So, taking refuge, our second support. And the last support that I want to mention this evening is the practice of sila. Pali word, sila. That means living ethically in relationship to all forms of life. Living with a very deep moral sensitivity towards and with all forms of life, including ourselves. And the Buddha offered this particular teaching uh, and practice in the form of guidelines or precepts, as they're uh, formally called. They're guidelines, really, though. Uh, They're not rigid rules that are laid down on us from the outside. But rather, they're the basis of our life as our practice. And the underlying principle of these guidelines being non-harming. The intention and the practice of sila is to connect with, as I already said, all forms of life with deep respect and with a caring heart, honoring life in all of its forms, and then to really act from this place. And there's a teaching that comes from the Dhammapada called harmlessness. I'd like to share that. All beings tremble before violence. All fear death. All love life. See yourself and others, then whom can you hurt? What harm can you do? One who seeks happiness by hurting those who seek happiness will never find happiness. For your sister, your brother, is like you and wants to be happy, wants to be at ease. Never harm another. And when you leave this life, And in this life, you too will find happiness. As our practice deepens and matures, we really come to understand more and more deeply what brings happiness and contentment and ease on a deeper and deeper level. And what brings suffering, what brings confusion, what brings dis-ease. As practice unfolds, as the retreat unfolds, any one of these guidelines might light up as a point of practice in any moment during a moment of touching, seeing, smelling, tasting, hearing, or thinking, while sitting, or eating, or walking, or doing your yogi job. And it brings our attention right into the present moments experienced, potentially 
with a relaxed, open-hearted, and focused attention as practice deepens, which then quite naturally offers an opportunity for the clarity of concentration, mindfulness, and wisdom to very naturally arise. In this retreat, we'll be practicing with either five or eight precepts. It's your choice. And I'll be offering the precepts. We'll be, I'll be offering the refuges and the precepts, and we'll be chanting them together at the beginning of each Dhamma talk evening. If the eight precepts are new for you, um, and, uh, or if you're familiar with them, and have practiced with them previously, uh, you're very welcome to try them out uh, for some days or stay with them for the whole retreat. Uh, It's up to you. If you do decide to practice with the eight precepts, you must uh, please leave a note for Surya, our cook, to tell her that you won't be eating the tea time meal because she prepares food for the number of people that will be eating that meal for that meal, or whoever puts it out, but she's the prep for it. So, um, And then if you change your mind and you want to go back to practicing with just five precepts, please leave another note to tell Surya that you are now practicing with five precepts and eating all the meals. So all of these wonderful supports... They're wonderful and very available here for us through our whole month or through the two weeks of practice. The simplicity of daily life here in retreat. The ambiance and the availability of the natural world surrounding us here. The silence taking refuge in the three jewels, the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, and the five or the eight precepts, guidelines, for living our life here in retreat. So what I'd like to do now is um, for us to take the precepts together. If you have... If you don't know them, there are sheets uh, available that have them printed. Please take one. And is there anyone here who will be doing eight precepts? One person. OK, 
Okay, so we will chant eight. Those of you that are doing five will just chant the five. And I don't, uh, as most of you know, I don't offer them uh, as a call and response. We just do them all together. And we do them in Pali. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato. Sam asam buddhasa Buddham saranam gachami Dhammam saranam gachami Sangam saranam gachami Dutiyam pi dham saranam gachami Dutiyam pi sangam dhammam saranam gachami. Dutiyam pi sangam saranam gachami. Tatiyam pi buddham saranam gachami. Tatiyam pi dhammam saranam gachami. Tatiampi Sangam Saranam Gachami Panatipata Veramani Sikapadam Samadhyami Adina Dana Veramani Sikapadam Samadhyami Abrahmacharya Veramani Sikapadam Samadhyami Musawada Veramani Sikapadam Samadhyami Sura Mereya Majapamadatana Veramani Sikapadam Samadhyami Vikala Bojana Veramani Sikapadam Samadhyami Nacha Gita Vadita Visukadasana Malaganda Vilepana Dharana Mandana Vipusanatana Veramani Sikapadam Samadhyami Uchasayana Mahasayana Veramani Sikapadam Samadhyami Everyone Idam Me Silam Magapalanyanasa Pachayo Otu
At the end of Dhamma Talk evenings, we chant the sharing of blessings together after the Dhamma Talk is finished. So some of you know it. Some of you know it a little bit. Some of you know it well. (laughs) Those that know it well chant with vigor so we can support those that are learning it and those that uh, don't know it at all. Yeah, there's sheets if anybody needs it with the words. Through the goodness that arises from my practice, may my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father, and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world, May the highest gods and evil forces, celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth, and the Lord of death, may those who are friendly, indifferent or hostile, may all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless through the goodness that arises from my practice. And through this act of sharing, may all desire and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth, may I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor. May the forces of delusion not take hold, nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge, Unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble guide. The Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, may darkness and delusion be dispelled. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.